you take your Bible today, turn to Genesis, please, chapter 35. You say, preacher, where did you go? I am so cool that I left my sermon in my office on my desk. And only the cool, really cool pastors do that. I'm just telling you right now. I'm so cool, I make myself look like a goober by having to run out. So I need to catch my breath. I'm just kidding. Thank you for being here this morning. Hey, did you come today to hear from the Lord? We didn't come from here, come to hear from one another. We came to hear from Jesus. And what he has to say to us. We began last week talking about revival. You started and said revival was in the heart. Next Sunday we're going to talk about revival in the harvest and what that means. But today we're going to talk about revival in the home. I want you to hear me carefully please. We have various individuals here in our church. People of various stages. We have young, we have middle-aged, we have the elderly, the senior adults. And by the way, all of you are loved, all of you are greatly valued and greatly appreciated. We couldn't have a church or a church family without you. We realize that, and I thank you for your faithfulness. And we want to be a multi-generational church. And I want to ask you this morning, really, really, especially those who feel like, well, I'm either single or I'm widowed, or I'm divorced. So this message really doesn't apply to me. I want to caution you, and I want to ask you to rethink that and reevaluate that. And don't take that posture, please. The truth is, this message, I pray and I believe with all my heart, applies to everybody. The need applies to everybody. Whether you're married or single. Whether you're a teen or a senior adult that has long been widowed, and everyone in between, we need to hear from the Lord this morning. How do we measure revival? How do we measure it? How do you gauge it? Well, here's what we've often heard. It's been long said and talked about the importance of revival, where it starts, what it looks like, how it starts, who God uses to start it. We tend to focus in our discussion about revival, we tend to focus on the church. The church as the place of origin when it comes to sp spreading revival fire. We talk about the church and the role the church plays. And I'm afraid sometimes we've taken the posture and the attitude that it kind of all centers around the church. The congregation, the building, the ministry of the local church. There is a truth to the fact that 
the church is, plays a pivotal role when it comes to revival. But does revival really start in the church? I'll let you ponder that just a moment. Centuries ago, there was a noted Puritan pastor. His name was Richard Baxter. He wrote many books. Two of his works of note, one is called The Reformed Pastor. The other is called The Godly Home. In the first book, The Reformed Pastor that I just referred to, he chronicles how God impressed upon him to see revival in the church. He had gone to his first congregation there in England, and he had preached and preached and taught and labored and worn himself to a frazzle. No fruit, no success, no fire, no heart for God, it seems, was being produced in his congregation. The people were still cold, they were still distant, very little life. He was agonizing over it. Praying and praying and praying. God, God revive our church. God move in the church. God do something in the congregation. And he said one day after earnest, earnest prayer and weeks and months of seeking God about his little church and their coldness. He said it was like the Lord quickened his spirit and impressed upon his mind this thought. If you want to see revival in the church, then start with the homes. Start with the families. So Richard Baxter began systematically going from home to home. The people in his congregation going to their house and sitting down with mom and dad and training them, first of all, talking to them about the importance of revival and the reality of God and true, and this isn't a bad word, true piety in the home. And he began to teach them how to lead that in their own house. After months of doing that systematically, with the people in his congregation, he said only then, only then, only then did he see God begin to move with mighty power. You see, friend, I'm afraid that for so long we have tried to measure revival only in the context of the local church. And I believe this morning that it's time for us to reverse that turn it around and for revival really in the church to be what it ought to be I'm convinced it has to begin at home it has to start at my house and your house Revival should begin at home. I'm going to take this down, and I'll tell you why. Because some of y'all are going to gauge my preaching time based on this thing right here. (laughs) 
we find a very perplexing and sad passage of scripture in Genesis 35. I want you to put your ears on. I want you to listen. Obviously, chapter 34 in Genesis comes before chapter 35. I know that blows you away that, that that's the case. You have to look at chapter 34 if you understand, if you're going to understand chapter 35, these first two verses. So I want you to look at the first two verses of 35. And God said unto Jacob, remember him? He's the patriarch, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. Remember, he had a brother, Esau, who it seemed all of his life, he ran from him, scared of him. He had good reason to be nervous and scared of Esau because at every turn, it seemed like he was deceiving Esau. One of the characteristics of Jacob's life and his character was that he was deceptive. His name means trickster, deceiver, supplanter. He deceived his daddy deceived his brother, deceived his father-in-law, Laban, all of his life. It's full of deception. That's why it shouldn't surprise us that in chapter 34, we see the very same thing being played out through his sons. I want you to hear me today. It is true that when it comes to sin, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. When it comes to habits and when it comes to characteristics, more than likely you and I will have the tendency to battle the same sins that our parents battled. That means your kids, your kids and mine and your grandkids and mine one day are going to be tempted to battle, I'm afraid, the same pattern of sin that you and I struggle with right now. We are moral agents to whom God has given us a choice there's no doubt about that, but I want you to be clear and understand the fact that, that there are some things that I do think gener generationally you and I can either help or hinder our children and grandchildren when it comes to their spiritual walk with God. We all have the tendency to be deceptive, but I, I wonder and I really believe that in the sons of Jacob that he, he passed down and he set in motion things in the heart and character of his children that they picked up on because of his own weakness and his own tendency and proclivity to dishonesty and deception. So be careful, Dad. When you're asked a question, maybe it's one you don't want to answer and, you're, and, and you want to wiggle out of it, or, or, or when someone calls needing to speak to you and you just don't want to talk right now and you say, well, tell them I'm busy or tell them I'm not here and, and, or tell them this or that and you have not just God's ears listening, you have little ears listening to that and they see things like that and that, that even sets them up in their mind. They're wondering, well, if it's okay for daddy to lie or mama to lie or mama to exaggerate or dad to come up with excuse, this and that, why is it not okay if I do it? You see what I'm saying? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. How about, oh, be careful, big eyes and big ears and big mouths. 
because there are little ears and eyes. God says to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel. Bethel was 30 miles from where he was currently in Shechem. And it had been 30 years, 30 years since Jacob had been to Bethel. Bethel was the first location Jacob went to when he left home 30 years before. He was running, running from his brother, running for his life. Esau had threatened to kill him, so he's on the run. And he comes to Bethel, and at Bethel was really the first time in Jacob's life that he really met God. It was a very special place, very significant in the life of Jacob. He met the Lord there, and God met him at Bethel, at Bethel, very significant place. It means the house of God. He met God there. And now because of the circumstances that had arisen, and let me tell you those circumstances. If you were to take the time uh, to read chapter 34, and I trust that you will, uh, let me set this up for you. We find uh, in uh, verses 1 down through verse 4 and 5 that what was going on, this young man named Shechem had basically kidnapped and raped Jacob's daughter, Dinah, his daughter from his marriage relationship with Leah. By the way, Jacob was in a polygamous relationship. And let me just say this quickly, because if you're a serious student of the Bible, you have to know this and you have to understand this, that while polygamy is present in Scripture, even among some of God's choicest servants, listen carefully, God never sanctioned polygamy. You need to understand that. And by the way, you'll never find in Scripture an instance of polygamy that turned out problem-free. It just doesn't. You, hey, you can spend the next several years trying to search Scripture to find a polygamous relationship that God reveals in Scripture turns out great, and you're not going to find one because, excuse me, it ain't there. Why? Because God's showing us that it should be one man, one woman, one lifetime. That's not only the smartest way, that's God's way. That obviously is the most problem-free way in a marriage relationship. His daughter is kidnapped by Shechem. He rapes her and holds her against her will like a piece of property. But he wants to have her as his wife. And so he and his father, Hamor, come to Jacob, and they want to set up a system, uh, or at least some sort of pay, uh, some sort of dowry, where he can have, he can purchase her as his wife. And so he comes to Jacob. Jacob's sons are out working, and they're not there at that moment. And so Jacob tells him that he will uh, get back to him in verse 25 through 30. And it came to pass, uh, uh, on, uh, it, before I get there, let me tell you what had, what had happened. Okay, Simeon and Levi, who were Dinah's full-blooded brothers, 
in this polygamous culture, the responsibility of the family well-being and the sibling well-being fell on the brothers, the full-blooded brothers, not on the father, incidentally. And so these brothers being enraged and angered that Dinah had been kidnapped, Dinah had been violated, Dinah had been raped. And the audacity of Shechem to come and stand there and want their sister's hand in marriage. Who does he think he is? Not only has he kept our sister, he dishonored our sister. He hurt our sister. So vengeance must take place. Revenge is going to be enacted. And so they develop this plan. And here's the plan. He tells Shechem and Hamor, if you will have all of your males circumcised, then you can have our sister to wife. And as Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story is that on the third day, verse 25, it came to pass on the third day when the men of Shechem were sore that the two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword, came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. Doctors say, or I've been told through my reading, that the third day after this procedure would have been the worst day of recovery. Very painful. A high fever would have set in, basically rendering all the men in the village immobile, unable to protect themselves. Simeon and Levi knew that. And so they, they, they brought their servants which we don't know what number that was, but they came to the city. The men were incapacitated. They were, if we could say it this way, they were helpless, they were defenseless. So Simeon and Levi led their men, their servants, their workers to go literally annihilate and destroy all the males of the city. So the scripture goes on to tell us what they did. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their sheep, their oxen, uh, that which was in the city and in the field, their wealth, their little ones, their wives, took they captive. So it wasn't just enough that they were going to enact revenge. They took away their possessions. They, they, they took their wives and their kids, and they kidnapped them. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me to make me stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. I, being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me, or against us, basically, and slay us, and we will be destroyed, I and my house. In other words, he looks at these sons, and he says, Boys, what in the world did y'all do? You've made it to work. We can't stay here any longer. Our lives are in jeopardy. What you've done was not only dishonest, it was dangerous. And it put our very lives in danger and in peril. Surely, the surrounding villages and cities and nations and groups are going to 
come together and they're going to come upon us and they're going to hurt us and they're going to kill us because of what you've done. You've caused our reputation and our testimony in their minds to stink, to smell bad. They're going to turn their nose up at us and they're going to kill us. So I want you to see, first of all, that revival in the home, watch this, it begins when you realize that everything is not what God wants it to be in your home. My goodness, if you do a case study on the life and on the family of Jacob, brother, it is problems on steroids. It's dysfunction junction. This wasn't your typical Christian home. They wouldn't be held up in the sword of the Lord newspaper. This is the model Christian home. No. His wives aren't going to make it in Christian womanhood. Martha Shear ain't going to do interviews with them. They are messed up big time. Through and through. And get this. It starts with the dad. He's as messed up as they are. He's jacked up just like they are. And they are absolutely, absolutely in desperate need of God's help. God says, I want you to go back to Bethel. I want you to go those 30 miles back to that place you hadn't been in 30 years. Remember that place where you met me and I met you and I let you know that I was God. I let you know I was real. That's where I want you to go back to. You know, it seems like uh, that, 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 that whenever Jacob... All of his life, whenever he, he uh, uh, felt threatened, uh, driven by fear, uh, uh, a threat, a danger, something triggered a panic or a negative outcome in his heart and mind and that God would use these times in his life to get his attention. He'd use negative situations regarding his family to shake him out of his spiritual slumber and heighten him to his real need for God. And he does it again here. He did it the first time he was at Bethel. He did it again in Genesis chapter 32 when he's running again from Laban and from Esau and he doesn't know what to do and he's kind of caught between the two. And God meets him there. Here he is again three chapters later. And his motivation, listen now, his motivation for needing God and seeking God and wanting to call out to God was that he realized he had a problem in his family. Listen carefully, please. I want you to hear me right now. Let me tell you what we have in our culture, in our Christian culture, and in good Bible-preaching churches all throughout America. We have a lack of transparency. We have an overabundance of pride and let's just save face. And I don't want anybody to know that my family's got issues. I don't want anybody to know that I'm struggling. I don't want anybody to know that my wife and I, man, we're, we're, we're struggling. I, 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 don't, I don't want people to know. I don't want people to know that my son struggles with this. I, I realize there's a balance. 
I'm not saying, brother, you got to get up and air out every single thing that's going on. But here's what I see. I see a lack of humility. I see a lack of seeking God and seeking God's direction and seeking counsel. And I see an abundance of, let's just save face. Above all else, let's make sure that everybody in the church house thinks that everything's perfect at my house. Can I tell you something? I don't care what home it is. Everything isn't perfect. And if, if you think that your home is, my brother, my sister, you're already behind the eight ball. Because you have the worst problem of all. You have deception, self-deception. And you're messed up and you can't even realize it. Jacob realizes, I got issues, I got problems, and I can't fix them. It's a good day in your home, sir, sir, ma'am. It's a good day in your home when you realize my home has issues and God, we're not going to fix this without you. We've got relational issues. We're not going to fix this without you. We've got discipline issues with our children and Lord, we're not going to fix this without you. We've got marital issues of the deepest kind. And Lord, unless you move, we're not going to fix these issues without you. We're so overrun by pride and ego. We don't want anybody anybody to know we're struggling. And that hinders us from getting transparent, not in front of one another, but before God himself. Amen. Stop trying to save face. Stop living in that deception. Hey, ladies, stop worrying about your pride and your image. Let me tell you something. In many, many homes, many families, in our good churches and in this good church, here's what we have. We have people who outwardly have a wonderful testimony, a wonderful reputation, and then all along behind closed doors, in the family, within the family unit, the kids know the truth. The spouse knows the truth. That we're jacked up. We're messed up. And the kids are seeing the pride. The kids are seeing this tendency we have we got to hold up our family name. Stop worrying about your family name and start worrying about and getting broken over your own current condition between you and the Lord. God help us. Oh, God help me. Because I need revival in my home. But I'm not going to see it, and you're not either, until you realize i got problems at my house. And only God can help me. Number two, and I want you to hang on, listen carefully. Revival in the home needs to be led and initiated by the head of the house. That's why God tells Jacob. He doesn't tell the wives. He doesn't tell the sons. I better put my watch back on. He doesn't tell the sons. <laughs> he tells Jacob, 
you need to go to Bethel. It's time for you to get your mess in gear, get your house in order, get your peeps together, get your stuff together, because you need to go back to Bethel. Jacob, you're the head of that home, Jacob. I like the Joshua spirit in chapter 24, verse 15, where he says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Everybody else can do what they want to. I can't control them. I'm not, I'm not accountable for them. I'm accountable for my home. Every man in this room, every man look at me right here. Every man look at me right here. Sir, you are accountable for your home. Christian pal's not accountable for your home. You're accountable for your home. I'm accountable for mine. Your wife isn't accountable for your home. Your daddy and your mama aren't accountable anymore for your home. You are. And it's time that every man in this room take your role and lead as the spiritual high priest of your home. Well, we don't have any kids. Doesn't matter. I'm talking about you and your wife. Well, our kids are already gone. It doesn't matter. I'm talking about you and your wife. That's where it starts. You're the spiritual priest of your home. You're the central Christ figure in your home. You are to be representing Jesus in your home. You're to be a portrait of Jesus in your home. You are, my dear precious brother. And then you are to be the chief repenter in your home. Do you understand what I mean by that? That means when there's an issue and a problem and when you blow it, that means that you're the quickest one and the first one to come before your family and say, Daddy messed up. Daddy was wrong. Daddy sinned. They already knew it because they saw it too. And you repent. Oh, friend, when's the last time that took place at your house? When's the last time you got with your wife and you took her hand and you said, Honey, I was wrong either in my attitude, my actions, my words. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? That's not going to take place here in church because that's not taking place at your house. It's time we do that. Job offered sacrifices and interceded on behalf of his family. Job chapter 1 verse 5. Richard Baxter in his work, The Godly Home, he said this, that a holy, well-governed family is the preparative to a holy and well-governed church in these Puritan homes the father led typically both morning and evening devotions that would consist in scripture reading catechisms, singing and prayer and in the event that the husband was unavailable to lead family worship, the wife did it see Deuteronomy 6 teaches the importance of connection and shepherding 
We must connect with our children in order to transmit the truth and reality of God to them. It's not an either-or proposition. It's both and. Listen to me, parents. It's playing with them and praying with them. It's teaching kids how to ride a bike and teaching them how to read their Bible. It's taking them out to a ball game and taking them out witnessing. It's connecting with them on a recreational level and connecting with them on a spiritual level. It's talking to them about their day and talking to them about their fears and insecurities without belittling them. It's sharing and listening. Josh McDowell, when his kids were young, his oldest child, he, had a, he sat down and he really just gave his son, he corrected him. He had a big, long, drawn-out conversation with him. And at the end, his son really didn't say anything, didn't say a whole lot because Josh was doing all the talking and he got done and he looked at his son. He said, now, son, wasn't that good? Aren't you glad we had this conversation? And his son said, Dad, we didn't have a conversation. He said, well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, we did. What do you mean we didn't have a conversation? He said, I thought a conversation was when both people got to talk. He said, it is. He said, oh, Dad, I didn't get to say anything. You did all the talking. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? Dad. You see, when it comes to spiritual formation at home, you can't be a tornado parent. You blow in. You blow up and you blow back out. That's not parenting. I don't know what it is. It's not parenting. Being a parent doesn't mean being a lecturer. The word parent literally means be a shepherd. Where you reach out and you capture Sir, my dear brothers, if we're not doing that, we desperately need revival in our homes. Some of you precious ladies sitting right here, you say, my husband's not even around to do that, or I know he's not going to do it. Then, dear precious sister, I implore you to do it. If he's not, you must Some of y'all know, I, I, I never forget the first time my mama got under conviction about praying and uh, us as a family praying and having our quiet time and having family devotions. And she said, all right, y'all, we were teenagers. My brother wasn't even saved. He was a pothead. And she sat us down in the living room. And I get, look, I know she was nervous. I know she was. It was awkward because we had never done that before. My stepdad was a drunk. He, he was gone. And she said, come in the living room. We're going to pray. And we're going to read the Bible together. You say, man, wasn't it weird? Yes, it was weird. But there was something about it where even in my heart, as a 12-year-old boy, I thought, man, that's a good mama. We didn't do it right. Whatever right was, it was awkward and weird, and y'all would have laughed at it. Because, you know, we're all the experts now, right? 
I'm saying some of you precious ladies, you need to come this morning and you say, Lord, I really got to have your help. (laughs) Because revival begins when you realize that everything is not what God wants it to be. Revival needs to be led, initiated by the head of the home, and then we're going to pray. Get ready. Get, Get ready to pray. Revival involves a return to the things that anchor the family in the Lord. Notice verse 1, Jacob, get up, go back to Bethel, dwell there. That means, that's where I want you to stay. Make an altar there unto God that appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Hey, put away the strange strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. In other words, he said, listen, we need to get some things right. It's a good day in your home, sir, not when you become a jerk, but when you assume your role as the high priest of your home and you come in and you say, I'll tell you what, kids, here's some things we're not going to do anymore and here's some things we are going to start doing. That's what Jacob had to do. There's some things we're going to get out of the house and some things we're going to put into it. can I take home CP what are you trying to tell me here's what I'm trying to tell you first of all wake up get serious about your role and responsibility for revival in your home it's not somebody else's duty it's yours it's mine wake up and get serious about it become broken over the fact that all is not well and we desperately need God to overwhelm our homes genuinely shepherd your family to seek and know God and then this might be the most powerful one of all get under a prayer burden for every single family member under your sphere of influence just get under a prayer burden you say I don't know what to do I'll tell you where it starts get under a prayer burden and ask God ask God to do something in your home every head bowed every eye closed let's stand together please